Well, good morning. My name is uh, Rich Doring. I get the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Real Life. Thrilled that you guys are here uh, today. And uh, today was Hannah, er- uh, sorry, Hannah Patterson's last uh, Sunday leading worship for us. Would you thank her uh, for the incredible job she's done? I want to talk to you really briefly about a slide that you're going to see on the screen right now. Most of you know that we have a partnership with a church in Palmarcito, Guatemala. Uh, Pastor Nestor and uh, his church are doing an incredible job. They're celebrating, I think this is kind of unique, their 41-year anniversary as a church this year. Not their 40-year anniversary, but their 41-year anniversary, which I think is kind of fun. But uh, they are doing it by going out into their community and being very intentional in serving other people. And uh, if you've been a part of our church for a few months, you know that this last summer when we went, one of the projects was to go to a a garbage dump outside of the community of Palmarcito. And uh, they'd learned of a number of families that, for the most part, live there. And uh, they they seek their livelihood by gleaning through the garbage and pulling out any recyclables or anything else that they can use out of the garbage to sell uh, to provide an income for their families. And uh, as you can imagine, sanitary conditions are not fantastic. And so what we did last year is uh, we actually raised some funds to buy something called Filters of Hope. Filters of Hope are just these very small bags, but in it is a filter that you can attach to a bucket and it will filter one million uh, gallons of water before you need to get rid of it. That's a lot of water, if you didn't know. That's a lot of water. And uh, the very first time I ran into one of those, I had a man get a bucket of water out of a river and uh, we went ahead and filtered it and I drank it on the platform in front of a whole lot of people. Um, I'm not gonna do that again, not because I don't trust it, but one and done, okay? <laughs> Chalk that one up for one and done. But uh, what, uh, what we did was we took about 40 of those down there. And so what you see on the screen, you can see a bunch of buckets lined up there on the top. Their kids are very involved, their youth are very involved in what it looks like to go out into the community and carry the mission of the church out there. And so uh, that's Pastor Nestor in the black hat there. But they went to the the dump this last week, and he was really excited to send me pictures at 1 o'clock this morning. Uh, So he sent me a bunch of pictures uh, just about how they're serving the community and how some of that partnership is playing out. So I just want to thank you guys. Uh, We've got another trip that's coming up next uh, summer. Very soon you're going to find some information about that and uh, what that's going to entail and the cost and the dates and all that kind of different stuff. So be watching for that. And then um, after we pass the first of the year, we're actually going to be having a really special weekend where somebody's going to be joining us and uh, we'll be talking about what it looks like to really kind of further those partnerships in the future. So thanks for praying for them. I want you to know they pray for you. They do. They pray for you probably every single Sunday. Uh, Have a special time set apart to pray. And so I just want to thank you guys for your support for them and uh, and for that partnership. I am going to read a scripture, so I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. You're going to see a scripture on the screen from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. 
The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters first to collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that we would hear from it what you have for us. Help us in humility approach you and allow you to form us more into the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Before you take your seats, why don't you turn, find somebody, shake their hand, tell them you're glad to see them today. All right. Of course this happened. I tell you what, would you like to go to my office and get my computer? I knew that this was dying, and I, by faith, came up here with it. So if you would get my computer, that would be great. So we'll see how long I can go without notes. If you haven't figured it out, I mean, by the time I get up here and stand up here and do this, I've read it so many times, it's kind of in my heart, but this just shows me how little faith I have sometimes. This is really in my security blanket, and uh, so I'm really, really nervous right now. <laughs> You're gonna see a picture of a guy on the screen here. So this guy's name is Marvin Lamont Anderson. Back in 1982, uh, there was a, uh, a woman who was assaulted. Uh, a white woman who, when she called the police, uh, stated that she'd been assaulted by a black man. And so the police, uh, they started collecting information, and um, the woman, when she made the report, said that during the assault, the man had mentioned to her how he'd been with white women. And so the officer went and found Marvin Anderson because Marvin Anderson was the only black man that he knew that actually lived with a white woman. And so he just put two and two together and just assumed, okay, so he brought Marvin Anderson in for questioning. The next thing was to, uh, to do a, a booking, uh, kind of a thing where, where you have a booklet and you put pictures, mug shots, all that kind of stuff into it. Except he didn't have a criminal record. He'd never been arrested. So there was no mug shot to add to the booklet. So he went to his workplace and asked the employer for a photo of Marvin Anderson. So he had this color photo of Marvin Anderson and then about five other different uh, people who were all in black and white. And of course, she picked the one, thank you. Thank my wife for me, would you? Um, of course, she picked the one that, uh, that was the color photo, and it was Marvin Anderson. And then they did a lineup. And so when they did the lineup, uh, basically what happened, I can't do two things at once, so hang on just a second. Basically what happened in the lineup was the only person uh, that was, was different was him, and, and they put him in the lineup. So she chose him 
as well. So uh, all of that took place, and um, Anderson's lawyers uh, had some opportunities to do some right things, and they didn't. By the point that we got to this in the story, it was actually well known that Anderson did not do this thing. There was a guy named John Lincoln. John Lincoln had stolen a bicycle from a man and rode the bike to, to the assault, and there was a bike mentioned in the report, and the man actually watched John Lincoln steal his bike and leave and go in that direction. But the lawyers refrained from calling that witness to the stand during the trial. And um, so he was sentenced to 210 years for the crime. Six years later, John Lincoln, John Lincoln, uh, he actually admitted to the assault in open court. He was at court, and actually the same judge was hearing that trial, and uh, he admitted to, to doing that, to that assault years earlier, but uh, the judge declined to reopen Anderson's case. Uh, and in 1994, by the time DNA testing came on the scene, Anderson requested help, requested help. However, uh, he was informed that the rape kit had been destroyed uh, already. So in 2001, Dr. Paul Ferrara, he's the director of the Virginia Division of Forensic Science, he discovered DNA samples that had been in a clerical notebook from way back in 1982. This tells you how organized they were. And the samples happened to be still valid. Uh, but even then, the testing was denied by the judge. So after appeals, after many, many appeals, the results were finally tested, and they revealed that Anderson literally had zero to do with the assault. In fact, the DNA testing showed that there were actually two people involved in the assault, one of which was already in prison, John Lincoln, the guy who had admitted to doing it 10 years earlier. So you've got Marvin Anderson, he's in prison for all of this time. So on August 21st, 2002, after 20 years, of injustice. After 20 years, not just injustice for Marvin Anderson, I think you understand this, but injustice because this poor woman, her accuser went unpunished. So after 20 years, or her, her perpetrator went unpunished. After 20 years of injustice, Marvin Anderson was a free man. And so today, he's actually the chief of the Hanover, Virginia Fire Department. This is something he had been training to do, actually, before he was arrested and falsely imprisoned. So since 1992, the Innocence Project, uh, the, the people who were responsible for finally fighting for Marvin Anderson's freedom, they've seen almost 250 wrongful convictions overturned. 250, that's 3,690 cumulative years of false imprisonment. 10% of those are death sentences. 64% uh, of those involved witness misidentification. 27% were coerced confessions, false confessions. So here's the deal, here's why I'm sharing that. The very thing that you and I, I mean on a daily basis, we count on our justice system from, from the smallest department of it all the way to the Supreme Court. We, we rely on a justice system to do that very thing, to provide justice, to show us Hey, here is right from wrong. To, the justice system works and exists to make things right. To make things right. In fact, at times, the system, though, is often abused to perpetrate injustice. 
And many, many times, it often isn't right. Our justice system isn't right. Justice. At, when, when wrongs are righted, when truth is known, when actions, thoughts, when motives are revealed, where the standards of right and wrong are upheld in perfection. So in our flawed world, in our flawed world full of flawed examples and flawed judgments, who's qualified to be a judge then? We make false assumptions all the time. We do it based on limited information. We just are sure we know the truth. In all of those instances, who's qualified to be the judge? So we're at a really kind of sobering moment in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So in this series, we've asked a question. As we've gone through this creed, what we're, we're declaring is, yes, what we believe, but we're also declaring what we have. What do we have when we say we have, we have an almighty father? What, what does that mean? What, what are we saying that we have when we say we have, we have a savior who's been resurrected? We're saying something when we say we believe that. And so here we are in this situation, and we have a judge who is coming to judge the living and the dead. What are we saying that we have? And so far, what we've talked about is the fact that we have a loving father who welcomes us home. The way home is Jesus, the suffering servant. He's a shepherd resurrected. And what we're going to see today is that in Jesus Christ, that, that shepherd resurrected, we have a just judge who's coming again. We have a just judge who's coming again. So let's get a few things out of the way quickly. Uh, back in the first week of this series, we talked about maps. We talked about the fact that if you were in point A and you wanted to get to point B, and let's say point B is home, you can go to Google and you can enter in all the information and it will show you exactly what you need to do, the right turns to take to get from point A to point B. But also, if you're in Google Maps, you can say, show me every single donut shop between point A and point B. Nothing wrong with a good donut. A little slice of heaven, right? But it's a distraction. It's not a necessity on the way home. <laughs> it's really not a necessity on the way home, okay? But, but it's one of those periphery things. And what the Apostles' Creed does is it shows us the way home. It gives us that route from point A to point B, but it strips off all the periphery things. It strips off all the things. They may not be bad things, but they don't lead you to where you need to go. They don't take you to where you need to go. So the, the creed takes the periphery things off the map and gives you the central truth that Christians for all time have believed. Okay, so the creed here in this moment, though, shifts from talking about things that have happened to things that will happen. So it goes from past tense to actually future tense. Jesus is coming again. We sang about it this morning. Jesus came once. We celebrate that at Christmas. That's the first advent but the reality is, is you and I are actually living in a second Advent right now. Jesus is coming again, and Advent is a time of anticipation. It's a time of expectation that there is one that is coming. So that first Advent is Christmas. We celebrate that because that was the first Advent, but we're anticipating and we're living in the next Advent. He's coming again to judge the world. And as soon as these topics come up, there's a million side conversations to fill the space. Um, when's he going to come? How's it going to happen? Is it going to happen before or after certain things? Post-trib, pre-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, post-millennial, post 
toasties? I don't know. There, there are all these different things that people try to figure out. How are we going to know when Jesus is going to come? And there's no shortage of people capitalizing on people's interest in the subject and making a buck off of it. Okay? The Apostles' Creed doesn't say anything about any of that. It just says he's coming again. It doesn't give any of the details surrounding that. And there's a reason, because Christians, for thousands of years at this point, have disagreed on the schedule of events. And it's not central to our faith. They've disagreed on the schedule of events. Debates about how, when, and all those other details, those are side stops on the roadmap. Those are the donut shops on, on the roadmap. But all of us do agree that Jesus will return and that there will be a judgment. It's the next big event on God's agenda. Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus is coming again. He's coming to judge. How do you feel about that? I was in a, a store recently here in town, and uh, I ran across a chick tract. I don't know if any of you know what a chick tract is. They've been around since the 60s. Uh, chick tracts are little booklets, uh, usually cartoons, but they're, they're little booklets, and, and they're religious tracts. They're designed to evangelize people. And so usually what you'll find is you'll find a stack of them by a, a, a cash register. Uh, sometimes you'll find a stack of them in the bathroom. Um, but, but, but chick tracts were originally written in the 60s, and um, they're not great. They're not great. And generally speaking, from an evangelism tool, they, they usually center around, this is what happens if you don't say yes to Jesus. They're very hell-focused. They're very damnation-focused. They're very fear-based. And um, for the most part, chick tracks, I mean, if you look at one and you open it up and you read it, they're fairly harmless. Uh, but then, you know, chick tracks, there's some that talk about how the Catholic Church invented Nazism and uh, communism. So, I mean, good stuff. They're fun reads, okay? And so, uh, all of that to say, chick tracks, for the most part, though, have one central theme, and it's fear. It's fear. And there's actually an image that pops up in a number of them, and, and it's problematic. It's a problematic image. You'll see it on the screen here. You see this judge sitting on a seat, pointing in different directions, you see the frightened man in the middle, an angel. Uh, but that, that image, that faceless judge, pops up in a lot of these. And here's the deal. Um, as problematic as those little booklets are, the faceless judge right there at the top is, is, is at the top of the list of the biggest problems. I'm going to tell you why. In Scripture, the day of judgment is often referred to as the Lord's Day, or the Day of the Lord. Well, here's the deal. Our Lord has a face, and that means something. Our Lord is Jesus, our Jesus. That means something, because what we have is we have a loving Father who welcomes us home. The way home is Jesus, the suffering servant. He's our shepherd resurrected, and in him, in Jesus, we have a just judge who's coming again. He's a just judge. 
Acts 17.31 says, For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead for 2,000 years. Christians have believed it, have professed it, have stated it, have put their, their lives on that, that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And again, it's tempting to get into a discussion of how and when and all the details, even though Jesus tells us himself, you're not going to know. It's going to be like a thief in the night that shows up. You are not going to know, but it still does not keep people literally from the 1800s on saying, oh no, I know the date. I know the date. They publicize it. They make a buck off of it and people buy it hook, line, and sinker. It's, it's just predictable, okay? And unfortunately, all that does is it stokes fear. Are you ready? And that's a good question. We need to be ready. But it's a fear-based approach to all of this, which is actually, and I hope you understand this by the time we're done today, the opposite of what the day of judgment ought to bring to people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The day of judgment is actually a day of joy for those who find themselves with faith in Jesus Christ. And it has to do with Marvin Anderson, okay? When it comes to making judgments about who is guilty and who is innocent, who's at fault and who is not, we are horrifically bad at it. Horrifically bad. Not only in our judgments of people, but what we think that our judgments of people will actually bring us. Our picture of judgment, true judgment, justice, it never produces true justice because true justice is things as they should be. True justice is when things are restored to as it was intended, as they should be. No judgment um, that we do produces that. True judgment has to be pure, untainted, unbiased, not built on assumptions or guesses. It's only possible. True justice, true just judgment only happens in the hands of a perfect Savior. A perfect judge, a just judge. So in the end, don't you want a just judge judging you? The one who actually knows the motives of your heart, despite your actions? Who knows the full truth about you? Who sees into the heart's of man, don't you want a just judge, one that's perfect in their judgment, to be the one that judges you, who knows your motive and intent, who knows what true justice is? Who of us has never sat in the seat of judgment? The, the phrase is quick to judge. Have you ever been quick to judge somebody? Have you ever been wrong? Did it based on assumptions? about this much of that much information? Have you ever made quick judgments and found out you were wrong? Deciding that you know the motives of a person's heart? I'm, I'm amazed that we do that with people we don't even know. <laughs> we seem to think we know the motives of people's hearts. Deciding you know the truth. I mean, it's so obvious, right? It's so obvious what's going on. The verdict is clear. And then you discover, sometimes even years later, like in the case of Marvin Anderson, that you were not just wrong. You were dead wrong. You were not a just 
judge? How many Marvin Andersons have I come to conclusions about unjustly? How many times have I turned a victim into a perpetrator because I'm not a just judge? What about you? How many times has somebody treated me like a Marvin Anderson or you like a Marvin Anderson? Convicted you based on assumptions or predispositions? How many times? How about you? Jesus is coming again and he will judge. The metric for that judgment is Jesus. (laughs) So he holds a mirror up, okay? Perfection, holiness, righteousness. If we've placed our faith in Jesus and we're living for him, judgment is actually welcome. And it's welcome for this really, really important reason. And it's not so our enemies can get smited by some faceless God that's sitting on a throne somewhere. Okay? As much pleasure as it might give you to look at that picture of a faceless judge on a throne and thinking about all the people you can't stand. Suffering the punishment of that God. That's not what the day of judgment centers completely around. There's a whole other side of justice. See, even if Marvin Anderson had been guilty, even if Marvin Anderson had been guilty, justice still would not have been served. Not true justice. When a victim cries out for justice, punishment does not restore justice, does it? I mean, I'm not negating that punishment needs to fit a crime and, and different things like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't create life, right? It doesn't put things back to as they should be. It never does. No sentence brings wholeness to a victim again. No penalty from an earthly judge brings life. Only Jesus is a just judge. And only a just judge can restore and bring wholeness and bring life. At Jesus' judgment, all things will be made right. I want you to just sit on that for a second. No more cancer. No more pain. No more victims. No more victims. It's hard to comprehend because I think our sense of justice is formed by a shadow of what true justice really, biblical justice really looks like. I watched this week, maybe you did too, the penalty phase for the Alex Jones civil lawsuit. If you don't know who Alex Jones is, uh, he's a conspiracy theorist um, who within hours of the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Connecticut uh, a few years ago, Uh, within hours of that on his show, started spreading horrific lies, saying that those were all actors and that it was a giant hoax. And then even within hours of the massacre, uh, after some parents were being interviewed and different things, he began talking about how the parents were actors and began sharing their personal addresses on his show. And because this is just how the world works right now, even in the church, a bunch of people bought it. A bunch of people bought it. People showed up at grave sites later after funerals had taken place and urinated on the graves of these children because they were believing these lies. 
some of these families left Connecticut. They moved. But it didn't help because Alex Jones decided to put their new addresses out there and make it public. These people suffered horribly because of this man. And um, I watched this week as the judge began reading off all of the civil uh, rewards due to all of these families. And, the, and the, 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 the camera never left the families. It was on the families the whole time. They were awarded almost collectively $1 billion in damages. And to that, hey, sounds about right. But here's the deal. I did not see joy. As every single one of those family members, those parents are sitting there, hearing these ginormous amounts of money being awarded to them, you didn't see a smile. You didn't see joy. You didn't see peace. You didn't see any of that. In fact, you, what you saw was raw, breakdown, emotion, anger, still. And there's a reason. Justice only happens when everything becomes as it should be. As it should be. Children are still gone. People still blindly cling to conspiracies to justify their own feelings. Uh, families remain fractured. Justice is only served when everything becomes as it should be. No pain, no sin, no death. No earthly judgment is going to provide that justice. No amount of money is going to provide that justice. Our just judge, though, ushers in the fullness of the kingdom of God where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And I just don't think we know what that even looks like. <laughs> Because it's just so foreign to us. All things restored. All things made new. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. Jesus' mission is going to be finished. Judgment is actually good news. It's good news. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it can be good news for everyone. It can be good news for everyone. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, to everlasting life. So I, I ask questions. Um, if, if, God, if God clearly wants to bring justice, and you guys are swimming, we're, we're all swimming in this world of injustice, why is he waiting? <laughs> why is this taking so long? And people for 2,000 years have asked the same question. Why is he waiting? Why not yet? In Matthew 13, the passage of Scripture that I read for you uh, before you greeted one another, uh, Jesus talked about a farmer. He was planting wheat, and during the night, an enemy showed up and planted weeds among the wheat. Uh, they grew together. Those two things grew together, and the farm hands went to the farmer and said, hey, We'll pull those for you. Don't, us, don't you want us to, to pull those weeds for you? Um, he said, no. He said, no, because if you gather the weeds, you're going to pull up the wheat too. Let both grow side by side until the harvest. Now, most people, including me, would just say, dude, pull the weeds. Like, you're choking out the good stuff. The, the weeds are stealing nutrients from the soil that the, the wheat needs. I mean, what's the point in waiting? Why would you? I mean, common sense dictates 
Go yank those weeds out of there. They're stealing sunlight. They're, they're doing whatever. I mean, it's just not good for the wheat, for the weeds to be in there. But Jesus waits. He just waits. And if Marvin Anderson and anybody else has taught us anything, it's that we are notoriously bad at figuring out the difference between the weeds and the wheat. And you might take that personal and be like, not me. I get it 100% of the time. Lying is also in the top 10. So I mean, so maybe delusions number 11. I don't know. Okay. We're notoriously bad at this. We're notoriously bad at who's guilty and who's innocent. Who's innocent. And sometimes in our judgments, we pluck the innocent out. Unintentionally. But sometimes we do that. And what the guilty ones are actually guilty of, we, we have a hard time understanding that. Plus, those roots under, underneath the surface, they're all intertwined, aren't they? They all kind of grow together. So if you pull up a weed, more than likely what's going to happen is you're going to damage some of the wheat in the process. What you and I need is a just judge. One who knows how to lovingly separate the wheat from the weeds. That's what we need. Not just that, but he also knows when to do it. He knows when it is going to be the right time for that to happen. Uh, remember, the just judge has a face. It's Jesus, and that matters. That matters. In his love, he does not want anyone to perish. Our judge has a human face. As John 1.14 says, it's a, it's a face that's full of grace and truth. Jesus is going to come again and judge the living and the dead. And he does it in the context of John 3, 17. If you read Pastor Ben's devotionals that are put out every single week, he built it on this verse this week. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, through him. Jesus who came to earth to save you, who suffered and died, he was buried as a human for you, who raised up from the dead for you, and who's sitting at the right hand even now speaking for you, interceding on your behalf. What if we really did believe that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, and it filled us with hope and joy instead of fear and shame? What, what would that mean for us as we lived our lives? No shame, no fear. I have kind of a feeling it would set us free to love and serve the world, not on our terms, but on God's terms. And that looks completely wholly different than how I would determine that we would serve the world. Okay? He'd be saying, go out there and serve your enemies. He'd be saying, go out there and sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. He'd be saying, give yourself away, which are not unpopular things to do, okay? or not popular things to do. But at the end of the day, I think we would see the world that Jesus died for a little bit differently than we do. I think we'd probably put ourselves outside of the box. We'd allow our comfort zones to expand a little bit, and we would be the ones that determine, that stop determining what we will and won't do for Jesus. But allow Him to actually live in us and through us. Allowing the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Allow the fruit of the Spirit to begin to emerge, and all of a sudden we pick up a cross. And it's no longer I who lives, it's Jesus who lives in me. And he's the one calling the shots. He's the one in the driver's seat. And I have the pleasure, the privilege 
of seeing absolute transformation take place because it's not in my hands. It's in His. It's in His hands. I think it would set us free to be incredibly honest about our own limitations, about our own sin. Knowing that true judgment, if if we believed this, we would know that we will be judged by a just judge. And I think it would give us courage to step out. Because Jesus' judgment is going to be the only judgment that matters. The only judgment. And he alone is the one qualified to judge. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. My hope is that those words fill our hearts not with shame and fear, but instead give us comfort. I hope those give you comfort and courage and joy and hope. Because what we have is a loving Father who welcomes us home. The way home is Jesus. He's the suffering servant. He's our shepherd, resurrected. And in him we have a just judge who is coming again. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. You saw it on the screen earlier, but I want to encourage you. Um, 1015 in the foyer in the room, uh, I'm going to be having a class. Maybe your next step is baptism, and I want to encourage you, if you're interested in learning more about that, I'll be in the For the Region room uh, at uh, 1015 to be leading some people through just a very brief uh, course, like 15, 20 minutes, talking about what baptism is and stuff. If you're interested, uh, I think it's really important to always consider what your next step of faith is. God has us on a journey. He's got you on a journey, and I want to encourage you to always be taking advantage of those next steps. So, can I pray for us? Father, we're so gracious and, um, and humbled by the fact that you would um, hold judgment at bay so that none should perish. Um, I'm so glad that there are people like family members that I have who've walked across a line of faith. Uh, not only because you've sent Christ to die, that you've You've offered them grace and forgiveness, but because you have been this wise farmer, this, this, uh, this incredibly loving, just God who has withheld judgment, there's some people that I love who have been able to walk across the line, but at the same time, too, we don't want to negate the fact that this is a little bit of a warning for us to make sure that our lives are in step with your spirit, that we have surrendered ourselves to you, that we allow you, Father, to impact every single area of our lives and that we have received this grace, that we've admitted our need for forgiveness of sins and we've allowed ourselves, Father, to repent and turn to you and receive the gift of forgiveness. I pray that for all of us today, that we'd find ourselves anticipating a day of judgment with a sense of peace and a sense of joy because we know that on that day, um, a justice that we can't imagine will be manifested and we get to see it. We're grateful for that today. So Father, thank you. Pray that you guide us and direct us as we go. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today.